I would like to welcome everyone to the season two finale of Why Wasn't It Better. I am Ooh. your host, Patrick Darms. And I'm your co-host, Anton Paras. And joining us for this season finale is a first-time guest, friend of the show, Taylor Sherman's Welcome. Welcome, Taylor. Hey. Thanks, guys. Thank you. How's it going? It's going wonderful. Wonderfully, yeah. Yeah, great now you're here. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, so excited to talk about this Pretty big it's... deal to be featured on the season finale, especially when we are talking about a film as monumental <laughs> as this one. Star Wars Episode oh, yeah. Two: Attack of the Clones. Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. It might be kind of shocking, but it's my favorite Star Wars movie. <laughs> I'm your saying favorite... it like laughing. Your favorite no, prequel or your favorite Star Wars movie? Favorite Star Wars movie. Wow. I, you know, I'm not shocked by much anymore, but I'd, I'm <laughs> excited to dig in as to why. I'm fascinated. So, yeah. uh, I've, I don't think yeah. I've ever heard that opinion expressed ever. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll dig in more, but like you said, Pat, here we are. Yeah. Season two finale and what a season it's been, right? It's been a fantastic season. We've We've grown tremendously, not just in our listener numbers, but I feel like intellectually we've grown. As we've yes. gotten deeper and deeper into these film discussions. Yes, you know, our, gotten, our minds have grown. Our, yeah. our hearts have grown. I feel smarter. I may not, but oh. here we are. <laughs> I don't know if I felt smarter after having to rewatch this film, but you know, we don't have to get into that yet. But yeah, this is going to be, a, I think it's going to be a pretty lengthy one. I don't know if I've ever had this many notes prepared. Yeah, uh, either way, it's going to be a long one. But should we jump into some admin before we dive into this fun Fun-filled episode. Yeah, so the listeners, um, if they recall, um, we did a season recap uh, at the end of the first season, and we also gave a little bit of a preview in that episode of what listeners could expect for season two. I think we're going to do the same thing here. It's going to be an abbreviated episode, you know, not nearly as long, somewhere around a half hour most likely. So uh, look out for that in the days after this one. Excellent. And, you know, as we've been continuing to mention in our previous episodes, we're so thankful for our rise in views and subscriber counts across our different platforms like our Spotify and our YouTube. Really exciting to see that grow. So if you're a listener but not yet a subscriber, please subscribe. Uh, it means a ton to us. And for those of you that are already subscribing, thank you. We're so excited to be here at the end of season two. And yeah, we wouldn't be here without you all. Indeed. Oh, without further ado. Star Wars. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Set 10 years after the events of The Phantom Menace, the Republic continues to be mired in strife and chaos. A separatist movement encompassing hundreds of planets and powerful corporate alliances poses new threats to the galaxy that even the Jedi cannot stem. These moves, long planned by an as-yet unrevealed and powerful force, lead to the beginning of the Clone Wars and the beginning of the end of the Republic. Released on May 16, 2002 by Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox. Directed by George Lucas. Screenplay by George Lucas and Jonathan Hales. Starring Hayden Christensen, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Christopher Lee, Samuel L. Jackson, Ian McDiarmid. With a budget at $115 million, $193 million adjusted for inflation, and a box office at $653 million, so $1.1 billion adjusted for inflation. So we 
definitely have quite the movie on our hands. I'm going to go ahead and pose this question. Why was this movie chosen? Well, I think this is a no-brainer for the podcast. You know, we covered Phantom Menace. It was inevitable that we would be covering this one. Phantom Menace was and remains the most hyped movie of all time. This did not come nearly as close to that, at least for my money. I was, of course, excited for this. There, It didn't really matter if this movie was good. I was going to see it anyway, and of course I did. It's generally regarded as the weakest of the prequel trilogy. I didn't hate this film when I saw it, though. I actually liked it more than Phantom Menace at the time. I didn't love it either. As you are the guest, mm-hmm. what about this film made you want to discuss it? Well, I know this podcast is about movies not living up to the hype, and I know... <laughs> Your guys' feelings on uh, the prequels. But like I said, this is my favorite Star Wars movie, and I wanted to um, play devil's advocate a little bit and um, make mm-hmm. it a, a discussion instead of uh, you know a complete attack and destruction on, on George Lucas. Makes sense. You don't want us to just steamroll this movie. Yeah, I'm here to defend it. Not really, right. but we'll, we'll see where it goes. All right, you're the hero this movie needed. I think okay. it's admirable that you want to defend this movie's legacy. Let's just say my favorite part is when Padme and Anakin are rolling in the uh, meadows. I don't believe that. That's a little yeah, specific. I, I, oh, it was a joke. It had to be a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Second best part. Our cameras are off, but I, I do know that there's no way you could have said that with a straight face. No. I'm smiling yeah. like throughout this whole thing. I and can't. I'm shaking my head disgust. <laughs> but Taylor, you are a Star Wars fan in general. Is that correct? Yeah, I've fallen off um, recently. We all Actually, have. more than recently. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, the height of my Star Wars fandom was around this time when the movie came out, when the prequels came out. And I think that's I'm wearing like rose colored glasses a little bit. I mean, more than a little bit. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty critical of the prequels, but I still enjoy them. Oh, that's fair. And then obviously the, you know, when the new ones came out, uh, at least like five or ten. Has it been like that long? Ten years ago? No. like Five years ago? I've, like, the sequel trilogy, you mean? Yeah, the sequels. Yeah. Force the Awakens was trilogy. Christmas 2015. Is that right? Sounds about right. Yeah. Damn, somewhere around almost, there. I remember uh, it being almost cold. Almost 10 years ago. Yeah, almost. Yeah, so I've completely fallen off from Star Wars. And then all the... Once Disney bought it, I thought that was going to be... It was going to be good for the uh, for everything, but no. Yeah, it feels a little distilled, if that makes sense, where... They're just trying to find like the strongest aspects and capitalize on that with each thing that they put out. Mm-hmm. But sounds about now, right. But now, hey, we're we're taking a little bit of a lens and looking at Attack of the Clones. And for me, I think uh, there was so much around having a sequel to a very disappointing film that, of course, we all want to touch on. How much course correction is occurring? What lessons were learned from the first film that they try to address in the second? Right. <laughs> <laughs> And oh, you think they learned anything from Phantom Menace? Oh, <laughs> and listeners, it's uh, if there was if this was uh, Arrested Development, <laughs> Ron Howard being in the background saying they did not. No. Well, they. Uh, I'll argue about that. Yeah. Well. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the production history. This is not going to be too long. George Lucas was reportedly hesitant to write the screenplay for this after the tepid critical reaction to Phantom Menace. Think about the bullet we all could have dodged if he hadn't. Uh, In March of 2000, just three months before the start of principal photography, Lucas finally completed his rough draft for episode two. That would be red flag number one. 
um, for, <laughs> for help <laughs> with what would later become the shooting script, Lucas brought on Jonathan Hales, who had written several episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles for him. But Hales had limited experience writing theatrical films. Red flag number two. The final script was completed just one week before the start of principal photography. Among the many actors who auditioned for the role of Anakin Skywalker included Ryan Philippe, Topher Grace, Paul Walker, Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, James Vanderbeek, Colin Hanks, Jonathan Brandis, Devin Sawa, and Joshua Jackson. Leonardo DiCaprio wow. also met with Lucas for the role, but he was definitely unavailable according to his publicist. Any thoughts on potentials there? Uh, Jacked. Rest in peace, Paul Walker. Christian Bale, Heath Ledger would have been better. Uh, Ryan Philippe, probably a net negative. Probably, probably anyone on that list. James Vanderbeek would have been a horrible, hilarious, hilarious. It would have been hilarious. It would have been like even it, it would be an extra Molotov cocktail into a dumpster fire. But <laughs> that would have. The, uh, I would yeah. have wanted to see that actually. The DiCaprio of it all is really, really tempting. But obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. I just can't see him in this. No. As much as I love him as an actor, and I do, I just don't see him working here. Well, I mean, I, I would have loved to I see, see him creeping on Amidala. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm glad you selected the word creeping, because that, uh, that is what happens. So Lucas finally cast unknown actor Hayden Christensen uh, in early 2000, primarily because he and Natalie Portman, quote, looked good together, <laughs> oh, end quote. God. That's red flag number three. Anton, this is this is just for you. It's not in the notes, but something I thought of. My only guess that he ca- why he cast Hayden Christensen, in, in addition to the fact that we just read, is I, I think uh, your guy Garrett Hedlund was simply too young. Otherwise, he would have used him. Uh, well, Garrett Hedlund. I feel like it is it being the finale of season two. We, we deserve to have a good uh, jab at Garrett Hedlund or friend of the show Garrett Hedlund. Thanks for um, stopping by, Alan. <laughs> but yeah no he um no he was he was way too busy with a shift to chipotle to pick up the role for this film right moonlighting as an abercrombie <laughs> and fitch model which i'm pretty sure hayden christensen did as well at one point but um, yeah. anyway back to the production history george lucas had asked in sync to film a small background cameo appearance in order to satisfy his daughters they were cut out of the film in post-production amazing they cut that out and they left some other stuff in that we'll get to Principal photography occurred between June and September of 2000 at Fox Studios in Sydney, Australia. At one point, they actually ran out of sound stages to shoot on, forcing the art department to construct more. On-location filming took place at the Plaza de España in Seville, London, China, Vancouver, San Diego, Italy at Lake Como, and the Royal Palace of Caserta which is in Italy as well. And of course, in the Tunisian desert, because we can't have a Star Wars film without going back to the most boring planet in the universe, Mm -hmm. Tatooine. Uh, Reshoots were held in March of 2001. During this time, a new action sequence was developed featuring the droid factory after Lucas had decided that the film lacked a quick enough pace. Uh, The sequence's pre-visualization was rushed and the footage was shot within four and a half hours. That would be red flag number four. Attack Mm. of the Clones became the third film to be released that was shot entirely with digital cameras. The first two being indie films called Jackpot and uh, it, it looks like Vicodin, but it's like Vidoc Q or something. Not sure. But anyway, <laughs> Star Wars was the first major blockbuster to use this technology. And I, I will give Lucas credit there. He's always pushing the envelope on technology. 
Lucas noted that Palpatine's rise to power is very similar to that of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. As Chancellor of Germany, the latter was granted emergency powers, as was Palpatine here. I think it says a lot that this film made about 30% less than Phantom Menace at the box office. People were very wary after episode one. And this Naturally. actually ended up as the fourth highest grossing film of 2002. For bonus points, can either of you name the top three films? 2002? Taylor, Taylor, go ahead. Okay, The Two Towers. Correct. Dang. That's number uh, one. Um, All right. Chamber C. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, no, you nailed you're, it. You're about, to, you know, you're about to say it. I'll say it. Yep. Hot Chick starring Rob Schneider. <laughs> yep. Um, incorrect. Taylor, you actually <laughs> nailed it. It's Chamber of Secrets. And what is the third? Uh, give me a hint. Is it Anton, you part love of like a, it's a It's a classic. I, I, I knew this one. You know it. Is it, is it part yeah. of like a film series? It's or a it, is part of, it is part of a film series. Um, oh, Spider-Man 2. Mm, so close. Spider-Man so 1. 1. Dang it. Yeah. No, you knew them all. Yeah. Just looking back on it, I did like a mental exercise because I was like, I recall seeing a lot of these films in the theater. And I, and I went back to IMDb and like looked this up. I think I saw like 30 films in the theater in 2002. Dang, I mean, dude. There was a lot of great films in yeah. 2002, so I don't blame you. Yeah. Anyway, that's um, all for the production history. Let's talk about why Attack of the Clones wasn't better. Number one, the writing. And I want to mm -hmm. begin by reading you a quote, not from George Lucas, but from Joel Schumacher, who is best known as ruining the Batman series with Batman and Robin. <laughs> he said, quote, everything you see on screen is the result of the director's decisions. If you don't like how a movie turned out, blame the director, end quote. I want to just say it all starts with the script, and this script is crap. Yeah, so mm -hmm. Lucas was the writer and director. He sure was. So that's yeah. twice as bad. Yeah. Wait, Taylor, weren't you supposed to defend this film? <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, sprinkling, sprinkling in a little bit of criticism here and there. Okay. Well, that's fair, I feel like. Did either of you watch this on Blu-ray with the commentary by any chance? I have not had the pleasure. Yeah, I, did, I didn't want to further ruin this movie for me. <laughs> it is absolutely worth listening to. I, I would recommend it to any of the listeners who love or hate this film strongly enough. So basically, the commentary is shared between Lucas, Rick McCallum, who's the producer, Ben Burt, the sound designer, and then... Uh, four or five of the visual effects supervisors, including John Knoll, who's one of the senior people at ILM, and he is most famous for co-inventing Photoshop with his brother. So like a real genius, right? Right. He was also the most boring of the visual effects supervisors, but whatever. Most of his commentary involved saying statements like, yeah, we created this with computer graphics. It's like, yes, we, we can see that. Um, some of the visual effects commentary is like really, really interesting, and it, it's worth a listen. But Lucas's quotes... I have a few of them. He starts off the film, which is the scene when Padme's ship gets bombed. He says, quote, R2 is the first character introduced. It's ultimately R2's story, end quote. No, it's not. It's not R2's <laughs> story. It's a ridiculous That's thing weird. to say. Very weird. I just want to say that I watched this with my girlfriend recently, and she saw it for the first time, and she commented that R2 was completely useless throughout the whole film. Correct. Both the droids are completely useless in this film. They take up uh, more screen time than you'd think. Yeah, which arguably was a uh, purposeful. You know, I joked about course correction and lesson, but hey, less Jar Jar. Where do you stick those jokes? Hey, and that's actually something they improved upon from the Phantom Menace. Less Jar Jar. True. Yeah. But 
they kept the cornball stuff in other ways, which we'll get to. So okay. basically, when it, ta- when it comes to the writing, I want to start with the overall story and we'll drill down into the plot in the second reason. But just right out of the gate, the 10-year time jump from Phantom Menace means that it just feels very disconnected. I've always felt this should have been episode one. Mm-hmm. Anakin's relationship with Obi-Wan and Padme in particular, they are perhaps the most important part of the trilogy, but those relationships aren't really explored that well. From the very first scene where they're introduced, Anakin and Obi-Wan are constantly bickering. In their second scene together, Anakin openly argues with him. There's no indication that they like each other. You know, we're, um, we're told that they're as close as family, but they barely interact in episode one. And then Anakin spends the majority of this film trashing Obi-Wan. <laughs> and a few scenes okay, in gonna, episode three, they just they don't make up for that. I'm going to um, jump in here. I understand the bickering part, but I think the discussion, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think the discussion they had when, when they first were, um, I think they were talking about having security talking about protecting Padme and mm-hmm. and Anakin wants to, you know, look for their the assassins and everything. I thought that was actually a good discussion because there were times when like tensions got high and then and then Anakin says something. I have a quote. I don't have it exactly what he says, but he says um Anakin says why. It's like why it's basically like the audience was assuming why does he have to listen to Obi-Wan and stuff? And then Anakin pivots into like, why were we hired to uh, protect Padme? Where the security could have done that. We're Jedi's. We were, we're here to, um, you know, find, find the assassin. And I thought that was like a good discussion. And I thought the audience was like sort of tricked into thinking that it was like bickering. I would have been more okay with it if we had gotten earlier scenes with them connecting better but this is like they've been on screen two minutes and they're just arguing yeah and like you said pat it's a the time jump doesn't help you get no context on their relationship you don't know what's happened in that time that now anakin's a young man so no idea no idea what's what's occurred so a lot of miscontext to really shape these characters and flesh them out yeah, I have a question, and I think you're going into it. Where would you have chosen to like have the movies with between Anakin and Obi Wan's oh like relationship? I don't know exactly what I would have filmed, but what I what I would have done was completely throw out Phantom Menace because what really happens in that film isn't really important and doesn't have a whole lot to do with episodes two and three. I would have made this episode one focused more on their relationship, and I would have made his fall to the dark side take place over two movies. Interesting. But again, this is all subjective. It's like there's people that really like Phantom Menace. One one last thing about like added context of the greater universe. There are so many characters and there are so many just unexplained acts, aspects of the characters and of the and interactions with the greater universe to move the story along that I think a really smart decision they made was continuing the story between this film and the next film through extended media, whether that's novels, official mm-hmm. canon novels, and then even write the Clone Wars animated series. So right. you do get more. You do. Whether or not that's a good thing is up for debate. But it's funny you mentioned that, Anton, because I own the novelization to all three of the prequels. Mm-hmm. The novelization to Attack of the Clones contains something pretty important that they don't touch much on in the film. Anakin repeatedly tells Padme that he wants to be more like Qui-Gon and less like Obi-Wan. And he really 
deifies Qui-Gon because he only has this this brief childhood memory of him, right? They don't really go into this much in the film. It's a pretty important piece of Anakin's character that explains a lot about his motivations. And I am disappointed that Lucas didn't include more of it in the finished film. Yeah, no, that's a really good insight. I mean, I think I did get that energy a lot of you're not my real dad energy coming from from Anakin right, throughout right. their relationship. So that actually that 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 definitely tracks. But he does reference he does refer to Obi Wan as his like dad essentially in the movie. He does. So there's there but there is contradiction, and that's actually a criticism I have of the movie. <laughs> well, there's a lot of criticisms, but proceed. It's interesting that it's it's in the novelization, which meant. It was in the script at some point, and they must have gotten rid of it. I don't know. Mm. For being the so-called chosen one, what does Anakin ever do that other Jedi can't? Now, we see a lot more of this uh, in the Clone Wars TV series, right? But they keep telling us in this film how talented he is, but where is his Super Saiyan moment? Where is his Michael Jordan 1998 finals moment? He can't even beat an 80-year-old Sith Lord with two lightsabers. He murders an entire village of uh, women and children. Anybody could have done that. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think that the weird and even to me, what's even weirder is the rest of the council even commenting, oh, yeah, he's the one that's going to fulfill the prophecy. He, if he is the chosen, like if he is the for, for he is the chosen one. So there's a lot of assumed, yeah, this is that chosen one, but he hasn't really done anything chosen one like. Right. They're, they're essentially telling the audience, not showing. Yeah. Lucas does a lot of that, tells not shows. But it, it's like everything him and Obi-Wan are doing, they treat it like another day at the office. There's never a moment where Obi-Wan's like, wow, I can't believe my Padawan did that. I could never do that. You never get that. Right. There's a scene in when they're, when Anakin tells one of the clone troopers to shoot above the uh, fuel cells, and it's like a good move strategically. And Obi-Wan's like very impressed. And then he says, like, good shot, my young Padawan. And it's like he mm-hmm. praises Anakin, but like at the same time, cuts him like cuts him short with the like the, my young Padawan kind of thing. On the commentary track, um, the producer Rick McCallum, he was talking about the scene early on when Anakin meets Palpatine before Anakin leaves with Padme to go to Naboo. And McCallum said this scene was shot and added over a year mm-hmm. into the editing process when they realized that the story required Anakin and Palpatine to have a deeper relationship. This is all the proof you need about the bare minimum they put into developing the story. How is that not something they thought about in advance? Like in a year into the editing process, they realized that Anakin and Palpatine's relationship needed to be deeper. Yeah, it was, it was. And the scene that you're talking about was like less than a minute long. Yeah. It was just like a patch. Detective Obi-Wan, his investigation into the attempted assassin, assassination of Padme, right? His pursuit of Jango. He, he discovers Kamino. I think it carries the film. It's my favorite part about the film. I love a good mystery, even if it leads to more plot holes like it does here. But in my opinion, this is what saves the film. It's really cool to watch. It gives us some amazing world building that I will give Lucas credit for. And this is actually my number one reason for rewatching this film is I love the detective Obi-Wan part of the story. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head. If it's if if there's anything that I do really enjoy about this film is it what kind of a world it unlocked when it started really diving into the Clone War aspect with the reveal of the clones, with Django Fett, um, with <laughs> just yeah, just this 
basic military might of the of the clones and at the disposal of the jedis and really that's had a lot of staying powers over the years the problem is it's only half the film the other half the love story between anakin and padme it's some of the corniest writing and acting i've seen in a major movie it's Mm. awful and um you guys okay so let me uh let me gather myself for a sec Actually, um, was recently listening to your episode one podcast, and you were talking about like the transition between the Darth Maul lightsaber fight and and the uh, the battle on uh, I think Naboo, right? And like yes, this, yes. how terrible like how terrible like the juxtaposition was basically that we got this like the coolest fight scene, and then. It's like it's just, you know, disjointed with with this like boring battle in the boot. It's the same exact thing they do in episode two when Obi-Wan is like investigating everything and he fights Django, but it's it's you can't see that all at once. You have to see the hair pulling scenes with Padme and Anakin. And it's it, it just it kills the pacing of the movie. It kills like the interest, like just any interest you have in like the Obi-Wan part, it just kills it. Yeah, it's it's cringeworthy. I have another quote from uh, Lucas on the commentary track. I use recurring themes in the movies. I'm constantly taking the same motif and, and twisting it in a different way. And that is Lucas referring to the scene in the sports uh-huh. bar where Obi-Wan slices off the assassin's arm and he how he wanted it to mirror the cantina scene in A New Hope. It's like poetry. It rhymes. No, it's Awful. it's it's him ripping off his own content. Like he he was out of ideas before this movie even started filming. But why does he even have to say that? Like, why can't he just be like, why can't the Obi Wan just cut off the arm and have it be that? Oh, I I have some. Wait till we get to that. I in the plot holes reason. I got some yeah, thoughts on that one. So I I've seen this film and the way that it's written described as well. It, it it go I've, I've seen it in the category of space opera right and it it, it fits like those check boxes like on paper but when you really think about it and even when you look think about like the dialogue uh it really feels more of a soap opera <laughs> more realistically if if you feel if you'll both agree 100 percent. Mm-hmm. i agree and 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 one of the reasons that i think that you get a soap opera versus soap opera versus like an epic like space opera one when you have such when, when when you have the opportunity to really build out like the complexity of these relationships and how they influence like the fall of someone that was supposed to be the chosen one you better have like very good context and convincing just relationships that really drive that and show that but how do you effectively tell that in about what what was this film? Two and a half hours? Three hours? Two hours. Um, uh, yeah. Like 220, 222? 220. So that's difficult, right? And even when you look at the original trilogy, it's less it, it, it's a great it's a great series, but like for all intents and purposes, it's like pretty light philosophical reading. It's not too heavy. And right. I feel like this is definitely a bit more difficult to take on. So it's not necessarily an easy story to tell but if you are telling it like a proper space opera and you're trying to go for like for example um i'm an i'm a big anime nerd big nerd in general there's another series um legendary anime series that's been considered 
maybe like one one could call it like Game of Thrones in space. And if you're looking for like, oh my god, deep like deep relationship um, analysis, um, looking at space opera levels of just like the influences upon like uh, family and like politics. Check out Legend of the Galactic Heroes. By the way, to properly tell that story, it took over a hundred episodes of the anime. So that's not, Ooh. it's not easy to tell these kinds of stories. So trying to do it in like two and a, two hours and a half, it's a, it's a hard take. Well, that's why a lot of Star Wars fans prefer the Clone Wars series to these prequels for the reasons you just stated, Anton. Makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah. We were railing yeah. on the romance. Let's just get that out of the way so we don't have to talk about it anymore. It unfolds as follows. Padme flatly refusing Anakin's advances because he makes her uncomfortable and he continues to be a creep. He invades her personal space until he wears her down. That's how this plays out on screen. 100%. There's no, there's no other. You can't like analyze this any other way. That was exactly it. She's straight up like, don't look at me like that. <laughs> and then the cherry on top. She continues to fall in love with him after he confesses to slaughtering an entire village of sand people. Just to reiterate this, she is completely unfazed when he tells her that he murdered dozens of people, including women and children. To be angry is to be human. That is her response. That is actual writing that is in the movie. To be angry is to be human. But she says it like, to be angry is to be human. I hope that took <laughs> 10 takes because she had to be like, did I really just say that out loud? Um, there's a, there's another part that, I mean, I just want to, I want to hone in on this like creep aspect. This is the, like, I truly hate this part. Like I, I love the movie, but I, I hate this part so much. I mean, I hate the whole Padme Anakin thing. Um, he kisses her. He like goes in for the kiss and she responds. She says no. And I think later that night he blames her for kissing him and saying that she's tormenting him. And he's basically gaslighting Padme <laughs> oh, and, and, say, and like, and, and saying like all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's not even like he's, he's saying this, like, because he's like torm he's like truly feeling emotional. I think he's saying this to get like another kiss out of her or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wish yeah. I could just wish away my feelings. I think he says that at one point. Yeah, he's just saying like the 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 um, the keywords are like the uh, the trigger words to like mess with <laughs> her emotions. So, uh, I mean, I I do have to admit some light dialogue that was an improvement from the first film. There was the scene there 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 uh, Padme Anakin are chatting and he's he's saying uh, something along the lines of uh, we we got into aggressive negotiations. Aggressive <laughs> negotiations. What's that? Well, it's negotiations with a lightsaber. It's pretty. <laughs> I thought that was pretty neat. There's some I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Well, yeah. So for every good line, there's about a hundred bad lines. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, I also want to point out that in the field that they were in, they're talking about uh, <laughs> talking about just p politics in general and they're discussing how to how, what Anakin Anakin says to Padme like how he thinks like the government should be like structured and stuff he's a fascist and 
<laughs> he's, a, he's a fascist. He's saying like a dictatorship, if it would work, it would be okay. And and Padme, like, this is, I think, like a meme too. Padme, like, looks at him, like, concerningly. And and then yes, she just, like, yes. laughs it off. And then yeah. they roll roll in the, the field. Like, it's not, it's not so weird, like, electing someone queen. Nothing like that. And also, like, how more, how much more obvious can you be with, like, Anakin's thought process and just... Uh, yeah, it's blatantly obvious. Like, just it's not subtle at all. Oh. And if Lucas was trying to, <laughs> this was Lucas's idea of how to capture a couple falling in love. I don't want to know what's in Lucas's mind. <laughs> like, this is how you properly court a girl. It's like poetry and rhymes. Yeah, hopefully, <laughs> it all boils down to this: the Anakin Padme thing is the emotional core of the prequels. And if that doesn't work, then the movies don't work. It doesn't, and they don't. This is soap opera level writing and acting in a hundred and fifteen million dollar movie. Yeah, it's one to a hundred. Well said. Like, yeah, there's no slow like plot. No. No, nothing decent. And I and I do want to shout out the Clone Wars TV series, which I really did like, and that made so much more sense why their relationship works they're both mavericks who like to take risks and they are frequently at odds with the organizations that they're a part of the the jedi and the senate respectively the show actually developed their relationship quite well i thought i mean it developed a lot very well yeah can i just mention that they ended up extending that series all the way until like I want to say like a few years ago just because how good it was and how well received it was yeah you're it's right amazing. And it's and I mean, it is impressive if there are folks out there that haven't given it a watch, like definitely do it. It's fantastic. You like the show, right, Taylor? Uh, I'm not into that kind of like TV show, but <laughs> just no. <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying, Taylor? You can say no. It's fine. <laughs> no, no, no. Just... <laughs> okay. He's like, well, actually, I mean, no, it's no. a different medium. I'm, and, you I'm, know. I'm, I'm I'm uh, what is it impartial or partial? Like it's just there for me. It's like I don't yeah, hate I it or I don't love it. That's fair. Um, yeah. But I under, I've heard nothing but good things about it. Like and I respect it better than any of these films. I can tell you that. Does anyone have thoughts about the romance before we move on? I think we spent enough time on it. No, let's uh, um, tumble down that hill and on to the next topic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jedi Pudu. Uh, <laughs> Count Dooku. <laughs> Is a wasted opportunity. Oh, did someone say Dooku? Is it Duoku? Oh, Doku? I'm it's, unsure. Well, it's pronounced two different ways in, in the movie. Because yeah. Yoda pronounces it, I think, Dooku. But then he also, says Dooku later. I was I was tricked <laughs> okay, as a child. Okay. I was tricked as a child. Um in every like action figure commercial, they marketed it as Darth Tyrannus. Oh, yeah. And they never, ever revisited that ever again. They sure that's don't. Such, that's such a lame name. Oh, Can't Anton, I, so I have better. a bit about that when we when we get to the plot itself. This has nothing to do with the plot, but I think his lightsaber is my favorite lightsaber. It's oh, so cool. fencing lightsaber. Oh, with the curved handle? It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Good call yeah. out. Well, well, first of all, Count Dooku, more like Count Poo Poo, if, if we have a say on it. Such a wasted opportunity. His backstory, <laughs> Anton, has the potential to be one of, if not the most interesting character in all of the prequels. He's the main villain in this film, sort of. They mention him in the opening crawl, right, the text, but he does mm -hmm. not appear until one hour and 16 minutes 
into this film. It's just an right. astoundingly long time to go without featuring your main villain. And, and just I, such a waste. I mean, Christopher, Sir Christopher Lee. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. He's great. I also want to say that there's like a mysterious aspect to the plot. And I feel like Dooku was, was like the reveal, the great reveal. But the fact that he really wasn't like mentioned, he was, I think he was mentioned in the summary in the beginning. Yeah, he was. And may, may, maybe mentioned one time before that too, or maybe one time after that. But then the giant reveal was like, he was behind all these, like the Padme's assassination, essentially. And it didn't seem like such a like groundbreaking reveal, you know? No. No, no. No, I mean, I mean, they talk about him in the chancellor's office when when Padme says like, I think Count Dooku's behind it. And they met, you know, but and they go, we'll get into that. But he he doesn't do anything particularly evil except fight the heroes, right? And then he escapes and he gets killed ten minutes into episode three. It's it's just a it's just oh. total underuse of Christopher Lee. Um, also, does how does he not? Since Obi Wan like snooping around Geonosis, he had his guard down, I guess. Mm. Oh, Taylor, your earlier question about what I would have done differently with Episode One had yeah. this been Episode One. I one of the things I mentioned on that that um episode of the podcast is I wish that they had introduced Dooku and the Separatist movement in that film. It just sort of pops up randomly here. Yeah, I get that. The Sifo-Dyas plot point as well should have been included oh in yes sifo Dias. <laughs> yes yeah count um count doku um george george lucas also Duoku. pronounces naboo nabu it's funny stuff Hoth. it's time to talk about the plot holes gentlemen that's the second reason why this wasn't better it's a kind of half-baked stuff that would make you think that the fan that the the fans that write the fan fix online finally got a hold of lucas tied him up threw him into an office and ended up being able to write the script but no, this was all Lucas. It was. Um, some of the plot holes, we're just going to run through them. Taylor, I know you have maybe some of your uh, own. I have Feel plot holes, to... but I'm going to, I'm going to like try and, like I said, play devil's advocate here and see if I can, um, you know, explain something that you Please do, because I'm hole. really curious about some of the questions I have. Okay. Um, no one seems to have followed up on the Darth Maul thing from 10 years before. That just <laughs> goes unanswered. Nope. Palpatine is Chancellor, Chancellor Anton. Our boy Newt Gunray is still Viceroy of the Trade Federation, surviving yes. the impeachment scandals. Newt, Newt, Newt. Let's go, Newt. Okay, Everyone okay. is cool with that. You would have thought after trying to illegally invade a planet, they would have been like, take him away. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, not, it's not clear to me how or why the Trade Federation are still colluding with Darth Sidious, especially after how the invasion of Naboo ended up. It's just never explained why they're still working with him because they were promised peace yeah you're oh yeah that's right they just wanted peace so they could trade so they could make even more money they did right. it for the margins and well, how um, and is there any other better way to establish peace than by starting a massive civil war well, this... oh i have i have something to uh, i have something to not argue with i have something just want to mention mace windu who is actually my favorite character but he really? says at the beginning, yes, he says in, in this movie, he says at the beginning of the movie, we are keepers of the peace, not soldiers. And literally, <laughs> literally like the second after that has been said, yeah. the Jedi are pro-war, pro-combat like combat everything. 
Yes. There's nothing. There's nothing bes- like. No, you're right. If, yep. Uh, I wrote down in my notes. Padme is still using decoys like Saddam Hussein, even though she's no longer the queen of Naboo. <laughs> Why? Uh, can Can we give shouts out to that decoy? By the way, uh, the decoy's name, Kira Knightley. Was that her? <laughs> yeah, that was Kira no Knightley. Way. Wait, yeah. I know she's two? in Phantom Menace. I didn't know she was in this too. When she gets blown up. Yep. Also, why is Padme like, de- like disguised as like a, um, as like a fighter pilot escort ship? Like, yeah. What? What? Aren't they the ones that usually supposed to interfere with like yeah. disturbances? And when do they get shot down first? Wouldn't it have made sense for her to arrive at like a completely separate location in another ship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Oh, um. Yeah, she does mention Dooku to the Jedi. She says, I think Count Dooku is behind this. Like, now, obviously, she's right. But, like, why does she think that based on what evidence? Right. So then Obi-Wan and Anakin get assigned to protect her, right? Obi-Wan is described as an old friend to Padme, who has been a senator for, I, I guess, a couple years after um, um, not choosing to serve her uh, additional term as queen because the queens are elected on Naboo. She's never once run into Anakin in the past 10 years, even though he's Obi-Wan's apprentice. Like, not once. Just and a little then, weird. Yeah. So let's get to the assassination plot. Okay, let me see if I have this correct. Palpatine, under the guise of Darth Sidious, he recruits Count Dooku and Newt Gunray to his cause, who then hire Jango Fett, who then subcontracts the Padme hit to a shape-shifting assassin who sends a robot who then sends bugs through the window and they wonder why their plan failed. Well, it's clear that they were just uh, smoking too many death sticks. Oh, I want to mention something. Do you know who the uh, death stick dealer was? No. Mouse from the Matrix. Oh. Right. Interesting. That is oh, yeah, yeah, a good, good shout-out. There, yeah. There's multiple Matrix references or uh, like cameos in the film. Really? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay, let's talk about the actual assassination attempt itself. Sam the assassin is a shapeshifter, but she stays in the same form the entire time when we see her. Like, why wouldn't she just also, shift she, into a different form? Right. She covers her her face with like that little sash. I don't know why yeah, what, she does that either. Is the is the lizard face her real face? Yeah. Yes. All right. But but again, yeah. Lucas wrote a friggin' shapeshifter into the plot and didn't even have it shift shapes, which baffles me because you would have thought he would have jumped at the opportunity to shove some more CGI into this. Well, technically, I guess the shapeshifter was already shapeshifted into someone that they could never identify. But, well, but yes, you're. She's is, on yes, the run right. from like Jedi. Just, just Why, maybe yeah. change into someone else. When they try to corner her in the bar, she could have just walked out. Right. But she like, decides I'm she... going to wander around with a pistol out and try to shoot Obi Wan. Oh boy! So they take There's her outside after Obi Wan cuts off her arm, just like in the uh, cantina scene in A New Hope. It's like poetry. Jango Fett <laughs> was canny enough to follow the Jedi. I guess right. I'm assuming he followed them, who were chasing Zam. So he could eliminate Zam with like a saber dart. He could have just assassinated Padme while the Jedi were busy chasing Zam. She was just a sitting duck in her apartment with the busted window. Um, I have something to add to that too. Why wouldn't he just shoot poison darts at at uh, Obi Wan and Anakin? Another good apparently question. Apparently they apparently they couldn't sense that she was going to get shot with a poison dart like using their for the force. You know. Yep. Yeah, but they could sense bugs. 
<laughs> yes, yes, they can. I mean, it, it's baffling because now th- this is the first time you get to see like Django Fett, right? Versus previously, everyone just knew the legendary uh, stylings of Boba Fett, who, of course, is like a fan favorite, like one of the greatest of all time. Overrated character. Uh, which, yeah, so as you as you've as uh has been definitely noted, like eh, th- there's a lot to the mystique. But having said that, these were not the actions of the greatest bounty hunter in the universe. Is he a bounty hunter or is he an assassin? Because they're not the same thing, and they seem to be the same thing in this film. Okay, the only, can... I'm only Go gonna ahead. say bounty hunter because I've played the bounty hunter video exactly, games. Exactly, exactly, and I think he. Yeah, because the Bounty Hunter video game was like a prequel to Episode Two, and I think he was just he stuck with Count Dooku and all uh, that crew after his bounty hunting days, and like became an assassin. And he was—he's actually I love Jango Fett. He's like one of my favorite characters. Yeah, very interesting he is character, a great character. Very morally morally gray character, but overall, yeah. like I think they did justice to the Jango Fett character in terms of like how he was portrayed not necessarily in that scene but right. he looked cool well yeah, the I mean, novelization also, goes into yeah. a bit more and does him really good justice in the novelization he doesn't want to do this job at all he's only doing it as a favor to the trade federation because basically they're paying him so much money that he's never going to work again after this that's why he took the job to kill pat oh dang i didn't know that that's yeah, awesome. again so would have been interesting sense. if they had actually put this in the film he also he, killed a jedi which is cool Yes. Yeah, it's a good. Yeah, he does. He's he's a legit badass, and I agree with you, Taylor. He is one of the highlights of the film. His, his character is cool. Right. He he strikes you as a character that that knows his limits, but also does his homework on how. Like, he probably has figured out forty different ways to approach how to take down a Jedi, not just jumping into it. And he doesn't seek it out either. Like when when Obi Wan shows up on Kamino, he's just like, "All right, I'm getting out of here." Yeah. He's also, he fights smart. Also, it's like that he has the deeper aspect of like wanting a clone that was like unaltered, which would which is Boba. So it's like, but I know George Lucas did that only because Boba Fett existed in the later films, but right, it added like depth to his character. Also, how bad is that kid's acting? Every reaction is just, <laughs> 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 yep, yep, dead, dead. Tangley's here. <laughs> as much as I love Detective Obi-Wan, and I do, he is investigating a mystery that really doesn't ever get solved, and that's where we're really going to get into the meat of this plot, right? Where did the clones come from? Who paid for the army? Who erased Kamino from the Jedi archives? Yeah. Um, Sifo-Dyas. Proceed. Taylor, your thoughts. You will tell your what you think, and I will... Um... Retort. I can do that. Sifo Dyas was retroactively made into a canonical character. It was originally a typo that Lucas's secretary made while transcribing <laughs> a draft of the script where Sidious, Sidious was the one who actually secretly placed the order for the clone army. Jeez. Oh, so none of the Jedi, here, here, here's my issue with it. That's fine, right? Okay, it's a typo. Fine. You pivoted. You, you made this additional character. Cool. None of the Jedi follow up on the origins of the clone army being created. Nobody thought that it was a super convenient coincidence. Did, did they send an invoice to the Republic? It was never established how this was being paid for. Ten years go by before anyone checks up on anything. And the Kaminoans tell Obi-Wan, like, we were beginning to think no one was coming. Like, yeah, I, I, I guess you were. Well, wait a sec. Okay. There's some clues in the in the film about this. So 
Obviously, Sidious put in the order, and he used an alias, Sifo-Dyas. No, Sifo-Dyas is a legit, separate character. No, there's something you're missing. I don't remember when in the film, but they say something about how... how when, remember when Obi-Wan discovers, like, Sifo-Dyas is, like, the one that put the order in? He says, oh, Sifo-Dyas, like, pa- like, died 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Then later in the film, they someone, it's, I think it's Obi-Wan, he's like, oh, yeah. He's talking, I think, with Yoda and Mace Windu, and I don't remember exactly the context, but he's like, oh, yeah, I thought that Sifo Diaz died further than 10 years ago. It's, it's unclear. Well, Sid- Sidious did I, not place the order for the clones. I in, think he in, did. No in, in, no, in the official canon history, yes. Dooku and Sifo Diaz are really close friends. And right about the time that Dooku leaves the Jedi Order, he convinces Sifo Dyas, who can see into the future, he has premonitions of an incoming war. Dooku convinces Sifo Dyas to go to Kamino and commission the creation of a clone army. And then Dooku is the one that murders Sifo Dyas as part of his initiation into the Sith. Well, so, then that explains everything then. But, yeah, it's, but if, if it's not explained in the film, it's not explained. The film does not even approach the area of explaining any of this. That's true. And, That's a good and point. this is maybe a good plug for the Clone Wars series where they actually go go, go over this. They, yes. they reiterate what's happening in the yes. novel, right? And oh, yeah. part of this plot is when they first meet on Kamino, Jango literally tells Obi-Wan, I was recruited by a man named Tyrannus on one of the moons of Bogdan. Uh, Obi-Wan does not mention this to Yoda or Mace Windu or any of the other Jedi. It's just, it's never brought up again. Unbelievable. That is a reoccurring theme in that whole movie, like where they're so blind to so many red flags of everything. Yeah. Obvious to, to us humans too, like obvious to any like normal human being. But I remember Yoda saying like the, their force, their, their like sense of the force has been like weakened. But right. Um, yeah. Well, yeah the, I guess... the other reveal, of course, is Dooku literally tells Obi-Wan that the Senate is under the control of a Sith Lord. I don't think any of the Jedi follow up on this. Like, we know that Obi-Wan's mentioned, Obi-Wan wow. mentions this to Yoda and Mace Windu. But the best answer they can come up with is, we need to keep a closer eye on the Senate. Yes, that's exactly what they said. That's it. That's the... That's the mm-hmm. only thing they can come up with. I mean, what else can they say? They they kept a closer eye on the Senate, and then in episode three, they they found out about Sidious. They find out way too late. But what what they could have done was ask Obi Wan, like, oh, um, did um, did you hear anything else that maybe connects the dots from this guy Dooku or this guy Jango Fett? And he would have been like, well, um, Jango did tell me he was recruited by a man named Tyrannus. Maybe we should look into that. Nope. That's very true. And then this is perhaps perhaps the biggest plot hole of all. If Sidious slash Palpatine wants to trigger a galactic civil war, what was his plan for the Republic to find out about the clone army? Because Obi-Wan literally stumbles upon it. How would it have been revealed? Right. Without how, how was Obi- Palpatine? If- what was Palpatine's plan for when this when this civil war inevitably started? What was his plan for revealing to the Senate? Oh, by the way, we have this gigantic army that was created in secret. Yeah, um, it takes a lot. Because it basically, it ended up having to be what, approved that they're going to go to war, and then two, approved that the Jedi have to be convinced to just 
you know, take arms with the clone army. So everything that occurred seemed just, if it was really that calculated, that's a bit of a stretch. It wasn't. It all happens on accident. And that exactly that's what makes the ending of this movie more infuriating when when Dooku goes back to Coruscant and meets up with Sidious and Sidious laughs and says everything is going as planned. It's like, really? He planned for Obi-Wan to stumble across the clone army by random chance. He planned the, the Battle of Geonosis to get triggered by the Jedi choosing to intervene. Palpatine planned all that. It doesn't seem like it. No, it's it. It was, again, very just quite a stretch to say this is all going according to plan i think that line is just a dumb line in the movie i think that sifo Dias was i think palpatine knew about the he knew about the army 100 percent, right it, it would yes he had it he's the one that had it created ultimately well you said dooku and sifo Dias did but because yes, but, pa- but, pa- but remember dooku was working with sidious at that point actually i just realize another plot hole but i'm gonna try and defend my original <laughs> thing <laughs> so dooku <laughs> he's talking with like the geono june had what would you call geonosian geonosis geonosian leader mm-hmm. and the, oh, he Poggle was like, the lesser. Where, <laughs> who has all those weird like noises that he makes as like language that's the guy right yeah um he's like where did this army come from and then dooku was like i have no idea <laughs> you know like and i truly believed him like he wouldn't lie right like and then also why would they make the droid army if dooku knew about the clone army but regardless it's it's almost think, like the writer director didn't know what he was doing i think that Sifo-Dyas was the alias or he did it and you know the sorry who are the alien who who's the cloners what's what what are they called the kaminoans the cloners, they would reach out to the Republic and be like, we have this order on, from from the request of sifo And then it was all like under the wraps. And then Sidious could play like dumb and be like, oh, cool. Like, I didn't know this. Like, let's do it. I suppose. But like, how, how much longer would they have waited? Another 10 years? Yeah, they go 10 it's... years without being paid for creating this giant army. I thought it was like they paid him up front. I, maybe it's not explained right. the info it's is not lacking explained. the info is lacking none of it's explained back to the, the jedi hill. being yeah. incompetent so they know someone claiming to be a jedi commissioned the creation of this army they know that someone probably a jedi deleted kamino from the archives they only know this because obi-wan managed to track down jango fett a known murderer who leads them to geonosis where the separatists are separatists are it should be the most obvious thing ever that this is, this is all a setup. And they do admit that they don't have a choice but to use the army. But again, no one follows up on this. Right. And they take it so lightly too. like, like um, when the planet's missing in the archives. Yeah. Yoda like makes fun of Obi-Wan for like thinking there's a planet and there's not. He like, what does he say? He's like, lost the planet Obi-Wan has. And all the, <laughs> and all the kids like laugh. Yeah, they're just, uh, the kids are like, yeah, dunk on him. <laughs> <laughs> and like Yoda doesn't do anything after that. And the kid comes up with the idea that someone had deleted it from the archive. Right, it's like, like no one so else could instantly. have realized that. I don't yeah, know. And- I like to think it was that kid that uh, Anakin had in mind when he came back to the Academy to uh, take out the younglings. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Revenge of the Sith. (laughs) 
the sifo diaz of it all it's never explained in the films isn't it explained in the series that it was dooku that who deleted camino from the archives yes and then uh took out sifo diaz right okay i mean that makes sense right that it does make sense it's just maddening that it's not actually explained in either one of these films Right, but in a sense, you can't say it's a plot hole. It's absolutely a plot hole. Because there's no contradicting, there's no like contradicting or like, I guess, okay. If you if you have a question about the plot and the answer isn't within the same plot, it's a plot hole. Okay. That's how I, I look at it. I understood. I will, no, I'll, it, it had like all these thoughts about like contradictions. It does get me thinking about maybe like an aspect of the film that we could say like is that a plot hole but also it's just something difficult to convey is this film is about a lot of, and like the series about a lot of contradictions the jedi say we're not soldiers but they do have to go to battle you find out that the jedi like the jedi are like no we have to have like we have to like you know renounce emotion and focus on like our dedication to the balance of the force but anakin's like but i want to love so yeah i I did just want to say that there's a lot this there is a lot about about contradictions i think like could actually be a strong theme of this film could have been could have been yeah everyone except palpatine is bad at their jobs Padme leaves Jar Jar in charge of her Senate responsibilities. Why? What an idiot. The Jedi Council can't do anything. They can't detect anything. They don't follow up on any of the softball leads they're given. They never look into how the clone army was created. They never follow up on Sifo Diaz's death. They never look into who Tyrannus is. And seemingly, they do nothing with Dooku's claim that Darth Sidious is in control of the Senate. Well, okay, okay, hold on. Jar Jar has no political experience. (laughs) No. No, remember, he was a general, though, in the Battle of Naboo, so he had a lot of success under his belt. Because if you remember, okay. the Gungans really kicked ass in that battle. Yeah, this is clearly <laughs> nepotism. Right. <laughs> right. There's a part in, this is unrelated, oh, this is related to Jar Jar, unrelated to everything else, but he says moy. He says moy moy, which is Spanish. And I look, and I watch, star, I watch movies with subtitles, and it's literally like M-U-Y, M-U-Y, how it's spelled. So he talks in Spanish, too. Like very, and, very. Yeah. And I don't get why he does that. Just you don't think um, pork, Lucas porkiness. wrote that accurately when he was writing Jar Jar's dialogue? Let's <laughs> well, not a little Spanish in there. Oh, yeah, I'll just throw that in there. <laughs> he was having a burrito, and he said, oh, this is muy, muy good. Oh, I'll write that in. <laughs> Um, but so the the follow up with uh, Dooku's claim that Sidious is controlling the Senate, yeah, it's like a huge red flag. But like also known that you know everyone Obi Wan and Mace Windu and Yoda were skeptical of like Dooku's claims because he was just he's evil and Sith. Oh, I agree with you that if I were them, I wouldn't believe him either. But at the same time, you're like we should probably just verify that. Right, right, right. Which they sort of said. Yeah, they sort of, we'll keep an eye on the Senate. Uh, Here's the bombshell. This is my biggest problem with the plot and the storytelling as a whole. When Anakin slaughters the Sand People, Yoda is meditating and he feels the huge disturbance in the Force when this happens, right? He hears Qui-Gon's voice telling Anakin no. And when Mace Windu comes in to check on him, he even says, young Skywalker is in great pain. This is never followed up on. He never asks Anakin what happened. This is actually insane that this is never addressed again. This is the first major step in Anakin's fall to the dark side. It is one of the most pivotal character developments in the entire series, and it is never mentioned again by anyone except Palpatine. Yoda and Obi-Wan never address this with Anakin? It's insane. Like, 
the course of the the course of Anakin becoming Darth Vader, I feel like could have been if if he'd gotten some proper therapy for for him to to deal with his feelings or if if he'd had someone to actually hold him accountable for his actions versus Padme saying, you know, you got strong feelings, bud. Not only is it a terrible storytelling decision not to not to even try to address this, it also undermines Yoda as a character even going back to the original trilogy. Think about it. Yoda knew that something horrific was going on with Anakin and he according to this film story he never addressed it or tried to help him in any way. But was there a chance in the in we're talking about the Clone Wars here? Was there a chance for him to address it since it happened? Because I think everything after that was the breakout of the Clone Wars, the beginning. He could, of the have, he could have addressed it with him at any point. Like, oh, hey, Skywalker, by the way, um, I I was meditating and it, it sounded like you were just like committing mass murder. Anything <laughs> to anything you want to say about that? Was I wrong? What happened? Can I help you? Nothing. Inexcusable okay. writing from George Lucas. It, it's a terrible storytelling decision. It's fair, but I don't think, I think in the context of the movie, it wasn't, the war broke out like right after that. So it, it's like chaos. And I just don't know when that could have been fit in. He suppo- he's supposedly the chosen one. I think it would have made sense for anyone on the Jedi Council to maybe address this. Yeah, I, I think, Pat, your point is so right. That's one of those rich com- complex very important pieces that you need to really flesh out the character or to flesh out the relationships to flesh out the why without it it's just a lot more of that telling and not showing Um, also and this is a question i'm not sure about so let me put it to you both in episode three it's implied that obi-wan and the rest of the jedi council they have no idea that anakin and padme are are secretly married right but Mm -hmm. in this film as dooku is escaping Padme runs over. It's a wide shot. She hugs and kisses Anakin right in front of Obi-Wan and Yoda. It's never brought up again. Wait, when was this? As Dooku is escaping after he fights Yoda and he, he's escaping in his little ship uh, uh-huh, thing, uh-huh. there's a wide shot of Padme and a bunch of other clone troopers arriving. And remember, Anakin and Obi-Wan right. are both lying on the ground with like what? bad lightsaber wounds. Padme runs up and hugs Anakin, and it looks like they kiss. And she does this right in front of Obi-Wan and Yoda. And I think like maybe that would have clued you in. I would well, have loved to have seen some side-eye coming from Yoda and Obi-Wan. There is... I mean, it, it, well, at least George Lucas is consistent here, because literally in the beginning of the of the movie, like the first couple lines, like like when, when Anakin and, and Obi-Wan are talking, um, let me. I have them. I have them written down. <laughs> I haven't seen her in ten years. She's grown more beautiful every year. Like, <laughs> how does he not see the signs? Like, I'd much. <laughs> They're all bad at their like, jobs. How does he not like? How does Obi Wan not see that? Like, Anakin is like obsessed with with Padme. Like, and he was like talking about dreams. Like, or like Obi Wan was like redressing like the nightmares of his of Anakin's mom. And Anakin was like, oh, I'd much rather dream about Padme. <laughs> well, th- this. <laughs> You're absolutely right. This this all goes back to the problem in Phantom Menace where they present him as this bad apple. He's too old. He has too much anger. He's too much of a risk. Nobody wants to train him. Well, Qui-Gon got killed, so we feel bad about that. So like, I guess we'll let this happen. But that's always been the problem with Anakin Skywalker's storytelling, right? They From the, from the get-go, he's presented as this bad apple to us. 
and it's the, nothing. Yeah. It doesn't encompass like Vader's like aura at all. No, it, it really mm-hmm. undermined everything Darth Vader meant to me. These types of plot holes, they were never a problem in the original trilogy. It wasn't until the prequels that Lucas started creating his own plot holes and he started using the expanded universe as a crutch to fill in the holes that he was accidentally creating while writing these sorry excuses for plots. Anyway, one final thing I wanted to bring up before we move on to the next reason. The novelization, one more thing, it actually addresses the question of the the chosen one prophecy. During a conversation, Mace Windu asks Yoda point blank if Anakin will fulfill the prophecy. And Yoda responds with, quote, only if he chooses to follow his destiny, end quote. I don't recall this in the movie. Seems rather important. No, uh, I I don't recall it in the movie, but I think I could see why they would cut it if it's just a continuation of following if he's the chosen one or not. But I think the question is, will, will Anakin fulfill the prophecy? And I think they even hint a lot in the series that Anakin did it just so happens to be it's his son that brings balance to the force but actually that doesn't happen because then they created the sequel trilogy oh right they took a crap on that yeah so it's a bummer taylor just for the record i thought you did a pretty good job of trying to defend the plot holes thank you thank you appreciate it number three reason why this wasn't better is the acting one of the things i remember from the commentary track that I wrote down is how they stitched together so many different shots of so many different takes in post-production that it's honestly impossible to say how the performances are at face value. There's really no way to tell if one actor is actually reacting to another's words. The most glaring example I can find of this, very early in the film, just after Padme's ship gets bombed, when she arrives in the Chancellor's office and Yoda tells her, seeing you alive brings warm feelings to my heart. And Padme does not even thank him for his words, nor does she ever really respond. She actually asks to the group, do you have any idea who's behind this? It's like the two lines were cut together separately. I doubt Natalie Portman was even on set that day. She's responding to nothing. Yeah, there was the a lot of the behind the scenes shots. It was the era of a too much green screen, if you will. And uh, that's a really good example of you you lose some of the scene blocking, right? And then cutting it together just becomes like a, it starts to feel like a, a teenager's collage of magazine cuttings from the 2000s. <laughs> uh, I would say this is a Ewan McGregor performance away from being the worst acted major motion picture of its era that I can think of. McGregor absolutely carries this movie. The rest of it is a acting disaster class. And for anyone who thinks that statement is harsh, I want to read you a list of this film's contemporaries. So blockbusters from the same era. Uh, Anton Taylor, feel free to interrupt. Let me know if you think any of these movies have worse acting than this film, Attack of the Clones. So all of the Lord of the Rings, no. The first two Harry Potter films, Spider-Man 1 and 2, X-Men 1 and 2, The Matrix, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, The Sixth Sense, Mission Impossible 2, Gladiator, Ocean's Eleven, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, Fast and the Furious. Well, actually, yeah, none of those have, um, yeah, none of those really uh, match the horrible performances that we see in Attack of the Clones. No. Whoa, wait a second. There are three that that leapt out to me, but we're not, we don't have to get into it. Well, I could argue Fast and the Furious. You could argue that. That's one. Harry Potter? 
Think about all the adult okay, performances actually, that are great. You're right. You're right. You're 100 percent right. You're 100. I just realized that. And then there was one other one that I forgot, but doesn't matter. You you have you have a point. It was proven. Taylor, this is going to be your last performance if you badmouth Fast and Furious. <laughs> I just saw that actually a couple weeks ago, and I realized I'd never seen it the full way through. It's such a different movie from the rest of them. It's so it's good. Nothing in common. I mean, I've for some reason I've seen I'd I'd seen the same exact scenes like a million times over, but I'd never seen like a couple of the other scenes that like brought the movie together. It's so grounded. I love it. I was going to say about Ewan McGregor, you can really see him trying to act through all of the blue screens and green screens. He's doing the best for, he's doing the best he can. And I really feel for him. The rest (laughs) of the performances, some of the flat, most wooden soap opera level acting I've seen in a film, Uh, Hayden Christensen, it's every bit as bad as people tell you. I've never bought into the belief that he's a decent actor who was just railroaded by George Lucas's cornball dialogue. I think he stinks. I mean, it's a big statement, and even right now, we have a bit of a resurgence of Hayden Christensen with the success of the live-action Star Wars adaptation, or the live-action Star Wars series from on Disney+. Plus. Hayden Christensen's like through all their ads right now, just because he's back as Anakin. Look, it's nothing personal, Anton. I just, I, I find his acting entirely unconvincing in almost every scene. They might as well yeah. have just made his character CGI. Well, I think that there is something to say about maybe what kind of direction that he got um, on set of how yeah. I want you to, 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 to act this out. And if it was, I want you to give me an angsty teen that really hasn't been given any direction on how to manage his feelings. Uh, you do get that. At least you got that. Maybe he got that spot on. I didn't even find him convincing as that. I just found his performance laughable in every single scene where he's he's required to use any kind of emotions. For anyone who wants to blame Lucas's directing or writing, I'm not defending George Lucas in any way, shape, or form. But I will counter with this. Ewan McGregor had the same crap material to work with, and he still managed to deliver a credible performance. That's true. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Fair, no- fair enough. But two very differently written characters. Natalie Portman has given us some great performances over the years. She doesn't do so here. No. But back to Christensen real quick. Is this the worst lead performance in a major blockbuster? Um, One of the worst. I have some options for you if you want to pick. Please. Mark Wahlberg in Planet of the Apes. Pretty bad. (laughs) Orlando Bloom in Kingdom of Heaven. Aw. Never saw it. I like that one. You like him in that? I like that film, but I don't like Orlando Bloom in it. (laughs) George Lazenby in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the one-off James Bond. <laughs> Sam Worthington in Avatar. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Sam Worthington in Clash of the Titans. Ryan O'Neill in Barry Lyndon. There's a deep cut for you Kubrick fans. Johnny Depp in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh. Awful. It's, uh, you want to yeah. defend that too? You're welcome to. It's weird. I mean, he, I think, I don't think he was as bad as. I don't know what kind of Michael Jackson vibe he was going for, but. Aaron Taylor Johnson in Godzilla. Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He gets universally brought up. His quasi-English accent in that film. And then I'm putting Natalie Portman in this film, too, because it sort of is a lead performance, and she's bad. And then I'm including the entire cast of the live-action version of Avatar, The Last Airbender. I can, can I add one? Oh, absolutely. Tommy Wiseau in the room. Okay. Didn't now, say I was going to say, Taylor, that doesn't fit the description. 
um, worst lead or co-lead performance in a major blockbuster. The Room's a small budget film. I mean, okay, that's true. That's true. It was a but hit, though. Budget part. Yeah. It was a cult film. It's different from a hit. And that's here, true, these, and I'm going to give you a couple others that aren't lead roles, but I want to give them a special shout out because they're bad enough that they deserve disdain. Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York. Here's my winner, uh, Sofia Coppola in Godfather Part 3. Oof. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Keanu Reeves attempting um, an no. English accent. <laughs> Pretty bad. Uh, now, very fun, many strange things here going on, Count. Fun fun call out for Godfather Part 3, another connection to a previous episode. Um, the, the, lead, the, the, the lead in that film actually uh, ended up owning a casino that was heisted by uh, Danny Ocean. <laughs> Whoa. Terry Benedict. Blown. Yeah. Anton, I got, a, I got another trivia thing for you. Did you know that Sofia Coppola is in Phantom Menace? In the Senate? No. She is one oh. of Padme's handmaidens. Dang. George Lucas um, is actually her godfather, speaking of godfathers. Okay, ne- next time you're out on the West Coast, Pat, and, you know, Taylor, your open invite for you as well. We can go mm-hmm. over to the Coppola it. Winery. And, oh, I'd uh, love that. Talk about this. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Did you know who else is a handmaiden for Padme? Kira Another, no. Go on. Rose Byrne. That's right. Yes. She's in this movie too, right? Yeah. She has like one line. She's from uh, Bridesmaids. She's yep. In a She's in a bunch things, of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Great actors. She's in uh, Troy. That's yep. right. Briseis. Troy. Oh, Troy. By the way, uh, Anton, some real quick admin in the middle of the episode. Uh, thanks to everyone who is making the Troy full-length episode on YouTube a massive hit. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, please tell us what you like about it. Yes, because we're not sure what distinguishes that from the other full-length episodes, which aren't doing nearly as well. But that's we'll get into that later. But thank um, you. <laughs> sorry, Taylor. Quick sidebar. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Christensen is... Also entirely unlikable. His acting's bad, and he's also he's written as unlikable. He's he comes across as a spoiled, entitled high school jock whose emotions range from I would describe as mildly annoyed to like foaming at the mouth, angry, like he's constantly being forced to wait in line for Starbucks for his frappuccino that he's paying for with mommy's credit card. Uh, agree, one hundred percent agree. He doesn't develop any bit of like maturity or anything like that he sucks he's so creepy in a couple of the scenes with padme that like it it might as well just be ted bundy in the role it's just it's astonishing how they wrote this and portrayed this well to be fair i think um even if if we're so critical right of his performance i mean universally it's been panned and then i think even in his mind like this was a huge hit to him to you know his confidence as an actor i think it was between after this film you know he has a few uh hayden christensen has a few films that come out um before the you know the early 2010s and then between between 2010 and 2019 barely any films completely stops any momentum which really should have been like young star vehicle film right Mm -hmm. but you you don't see this guy kind of falls off the face of the earth and only now does he come back again with these live action series um, for Ahsoka Tana? And he was recently in the Obi-Wan series on Disney Plus. So you, you could say he's been through it, been through the ringer for his performance. 
I think I read that he opened a farm and he just has been yeah. living on a farm. So yeah, again, look, uh, I, I know how harsh I'm being on him. It, none of it's personal. It's got nothing to do with him personally. Right, right. Um, and I will say this, Anton. I will yeah. give you this. I am confident that if he was being directed by somebody who knew what they were doing, his performance would not have been this bad. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. But I want to compare. I don't know if it's the right comparison, but you know, Daniel Radcliffe. It, he was a kid when he was acting in Harry Potter. I, I didn't think he was a necessarily good actor. And then a- everything after Harry Potter, I think he's like redeemed himself. And nothing that Hayden Christensen has done since episode two and three has like redeemed him in my eyes. No. Uh, as far as a lot of the rest of the acting goes, I still maintain that this film should have just been CGI. It would have worked better. It would have disguised a lot of the bad acting. I don't like Christopher Lee here. No. I understand the guy's a legend, but I really like him in a movie that he was in in the very same year when he was Saruman in The Lord of the Rings. He was amazing in that role. But for this, he's too old. He couldn't pull off any of the fight choreography. He could barely hold a lightsaber. It's even more noticeable if you watch this in 4K. When he's fighting Yoda and Obi-Wan and Anakin, his oh, face yeah. gets all like blurry and it's very yep. clearly just not him doing the action. Awful. Yeah, Awful. I and we already kind of mentioned this earlier. His character could have been fascinating and they just don't use him correctly. They it's underwritten, undershown. He acts every scene in the same way. I really I can only imagine how baffled Christopher Lee must have been at 80 years old acting on all these blue screens. It's like he's reading off cue cards. Also, when he uses the lightning out of his hand, it's really weird and awkward the way he does it. Although I think personally it looks cool, but he does it so like stiffly and I can, stilted. It just goes, yeah, just goes to your point. Yeah, you can tell they like they um they pasted in the lightning effect way too soon. Like his hand is still <laughs> moving towards Yoda when he does it. It's it doesn't look, it just doesn't look good. Animated Yoda doesn't hold up well to me. None of none of the characters, even the supporting characters, are well acted. Sam Jackson, like he's fine, but he's just playing Sam Jackson. Tamora Morrison as Django and the clone, like fine, doesn't have a he lot of lines. I like his scene with Obi Wan though; it's tense. It's it's you know it's good. But yeah, he it's true. He just doesn't do much because uh, then the rest of his scenes he just has his helmet on. Right, and then back to animated Yoda a bit. I remember thinking in 2002, animated digital Yoda looked cool. But even now in 4K, you watch this and you watch The Empire Strikes Back. Like, my my goodness, is the puppet just so much better. Yeah, it was a shame that they replaced the puppet in the first film with the animated version. Oh, the the, the crappy puppet. The Supreme Court (laughs) Justice. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that Um, they, they CGI, they have like CGI aliens and like some are just like in costume it, it's really weird and it's not consistent yeah i did enjoy seeing new gunray back and the rest of the nemoidians they don't have nearly as much to do in this film and that's one of the reasons why i like this film a little bit less <laughs> hmm. is queen amadala dead yet <laughs> and then, she can't do that shoot her she can't do that <laughs> this isn't how it's supposed to be Django, shoot her or something <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part it's it's non-speaking from from Newt Gunray and his assistant. Do you remember when Amadala falls and like into the sand in the arena, and he just goes like oh. he does this little laugh. 
It's tremendous. Yeah, I think he claps too. I think he does clap. And then later on, a laser blast gets really too close to them and hits the wall. And they're like, oh, <laughs> oh it's fantastic. We need, look, they're doing a spinoff series on Disney Plus for every character now. What are we waiting for? Newt Gunray deserves his own show. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to watch his rise to power? as the viceroy of the Trade Federation. I mean, that's what they're really lacking, and they're doing everything after, you know, the prequels, and they should do something like you guys played or know about Knights of the Old Republic, right? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Amazing. That's my favorite, like, Star Wars ever. Like, what aspect of Star Wars? And Disney, like, hasn't done anything before episode one, and I wish they did. Yeah. I mean, well, a few a few of the games have been pretty sweet. Starkiller was pretty cool. The Battlefront games were amazing. The original Battlefront games were I amazing. I love the second one too. Oh yeah. Oh, is there more? I didn't know that. Yeah, they they yeah. made they made a mate like a huge there was a huge release not too long ago for like a revival. It was pretty crap upon release. Okay. So last reason why this wasn't better, the production. And I have been saving this until Disagree. now, but this is a factoid about this movie. In spite of all the crappy things that I have said about this, I enjoy this the most of the prequels for the simple reason that it actually gave me what I wanted to see. Young Anakin and Obi-Wan doing Jedi stuff. The beginning of the Clone Wars. Massive world building. That's what I wanted to see, and that is ultimately what this film gave me. The Coruscant stuff, I think, is awesome. All the different stuff you see in the city, the chase sequence, even though it creates more plot holes, I think it's really cool to look at. John Williams' score is amazing throughout that sequence. Detective Obi-Wan, I mentioned, I love it. The action mostly delivers. I think Obi-Wan versus Django on the landing platform is a really awesome fight. Um, it, it's, a, it's an original fight. It's an interesting fight. The asteroid field chase with the, con with the concussion bombs thing, I thought that was really awesome. What do we think? I a million percent agree. While the first, like, I don't know, Pat, Pat, like, I feel like, you know, it, it's probably a little early in the podcast, but, you know, come trying to compare this film to The Phantom Menace, like, you know, I, I feel like even I also, like, prefer this film. And I want to find, I, I want to make sure that I'm trying to be as objective as possible. There must be something about the aspects that I find entertaining that really give that lend itself to like this film was better objectively than the first film, but it's really hard to put it on paper. Well, I think Phantom Menace is a better movie, but I think it's more boring. This is more watchable to me, but I, I don't necessarily think this is a better movie than Phantom Menace. But like at the same time, like if, if something was more entertaining and entertaining is very hard to gauge, right? Doesn't that mean it was, better written could that be an aspect of how it was better written that it was more entertaining no i i, I think the, the romance stuff and stuff like the droid factory sequence which is it's just so unbelievably stupid i actually think the droid yeah. factory sequence is even worse than any of the jar jar stuff but i i do think maybe what the the aspects that did shine through um all the jedi stuff and the i mean the world building of the clone wars and the clone armies and really you're starting to dig into the jedi and all the cool stuff that they do and all of the action like you finally get what people were i think people what people really wanted to see in the first film was 
okay, if you're going to put in Mace Windu and Kit Fisto and all of these Jedi, I want to see them do Jedi stuff. And That's it's fair. fair to say it's fair to say that that was probably like so influential um to for like young fans and that's why that this is a film that does have a lot of staying power despite it not being a great film that's well said that makes a lot of sense what you're saying taylor did we lose you no no i think all i agree with all that i think the action scenes are awesome you're missing one huge part of the movie which is the actual beginning of the clone wars and geonosis i i think that is all awesome, and I know you disagree. I think the droid factory is, is kind of lame and a little bit too long, but damn, everything after that is just pure entertainment, and I love it. I love, I love the war. The war starting mm-hmm. is like kind of, it's kind of like raw, in in my opinion. And I think it's so cool. Uh, I, I'll address the droid factory thing before the battle on Geonosis. The droid factory sequence for me is where the series hit rock bottom not this movie but the series oh my gosh. um between oh r2d2 with jetpacks on his legs and c3po being used for slapstick humor that was never that was awful ever used in the original trilogy and by the way this all culminates with him saying oh this is such a drag as r2 <laughs> drags couple, his head around it is so points. unbelievably childish and to top it all off all of the special effects in the droid factory sequence look are so bad they look like they're from a ps2 game it looks horrendous in 4k and when we know that this is a last minute edition that a, that wasn't originally part of the script it looks like a deleted scene it, it it's like i said this is where it hits rock bottom for me it actually reminds me of like a video game level like when padme is on that conveyor belt and she's like timing going through those like stamping things it's horrible. Like straight out of a video game. Yeah. It, yeah. It looks like a video game or a commercial, let alone a $115 million movie. But the the, the uh, battle itself, Taylor, I didn't like the stuff in the arena. It was, it was especially coming off the heels of Gladiator. It's just like, okay, that's clearly where they got the idea for this. I thought it was long, them fighting the monsters. And the, when the army shows up, the Jedi let themselves get surrounded in the middle of the arena. Like, obviously, you're in a bowl. You're, you're going to get surrounded. Stupid. And then when they finally get out into the battle, it ends up just being a bunch of droids running at a bunch of clone troopers like in, they're in the Napoleonic era. There's not a lot awesome. of tactics to it. And it, it's just a distraction in that part of the film. Yeah. Taylor, all of the action up until that point I thought was pretty well done. Okay. I agree. And I think a underrated aspect, or maybe not even underrated, it's just not talked about. I mean, at least we didn't talk about it, was like, just the sound effects too. And like every, and the designs and like the ships, I think everything is so cool about that, that this movie top, notch. like you were saying, you guys were saying like the, the chase scene in Coruscant, everything about that, like the aesthetics were so awesome. They were. And the sounds like, yeah. um, the assassins like ship, like is like a whistling ship. Oh, so good. Yeah, no, I, I will absolutely give Lucas credit for that. The sound design, on his films are always top level, and this is no exception. Between John Williams' score and all the different sound effects being used in this film, it sounds amazing if you have a good speaker system. Oh, hey, I have a question, sort of related, but not really. Do you remember when, I forget the the assassin's name. Zam? Or the, Zam? Yeah, Zam the assassin. When they, you know the, the, when she, 
shoots those like mm-hmm. electric like cuffling. Like, what are they called? Power cufflinks. That part will forever like boggle my mind. Like I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't. And either. I don't. Re- and I don't know what 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 when um what Obi Wan says. I don't even understand it even further. What like it just confuses me more. Like he says that was good. Like what does that even mean? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know I why they don't to... just fly around it. Why do they fly through it? <laughs> uh, not clear. Oh, I just wanted to. Uh, no, it's been bugging me ever question. since, like the fir- I first saw the movie. I think just like with Episode One, there's an overload of CGI in this film. They tried to do way too much. I don't yeah. want to rail on it too much because one of the most common criticisms of this film is how horrible the CGI has hold holds up twenty years later. And while that is true. There's a lot of CGI. Well, let's just let's just get out, get on with it. There's a lot of bad CGI in this film that just doesn't doesn't hold up, right? I mentioned the droid factory. When Obi-Wan is on Kamino, none of the sets have any depth to it. They all have that Photoshop lighting. Nothing really nothing looks convincing. It was a huge stepping stone for this technology because at the time, entire CGI sets weren't really a thing. So this was still in its infancy, and you can really tell now. And then Fully CGI clone troopers, I don't think that's aged well at all either. A lot of shots, it looks like a video game. The whole battle on Geonosis to me had that look to it, where a lot of it just looked like I was watching something I was playing on the PlayStation. I don't know. Um, I I disagree with the Clone War, the battle on Geonosis especially. I think it was very well done, except the Yoda-Dooku fight. Except uh, Dooku... fighting every part about that was awful i i think um you know there's there's a definitely a distinction that we've made on the podcast before of we always want to be fair to what was the technology at the time and while it may look a bit dated you know we we can joke about that as much as we want i think another aspect to think about that was really a trend that was set with the first film was how much of a direction the series went to where you're moving away from practical effects and costuming to more CGI heavy. And I think really even that's a more interesting aspect to look at and say that that was more of a, for me, that was more of a downfall for the quality of what you're seeing on the screen versus like poor quality of the CGI. Yeah, I that's a good point, Anton. And I wanted to bring this up though because as much crap as I will give the CGI in this film, there is so much CGI in this film that some of it I think does really look good still. And I'm going to single out all of the Coruscant stuff. I really enjoyed rewatching the whole chase sequence to me. I thought that held up really, really well. And I think it was because it was at night. A lot of the stuff in broad daylight, it's a lot harder to animate. Again, well, the asteroid you, field chase yep. where Django on, you know, um, um, they're not concussion bombs. They're like sound black holes, sound bombs, whatever. Like all that stuff is cool. So there's plenty of good effects in this movie. There's just so much of it. Right. Maybe it's just a it's it's that aspect of it is like that heavy crutch on using the CGI so heavily. Yeah. It's like how do you invest in it to like maximize like just get the most value out of what you're putting into it for specific scenes versus really just, you know, we've talked about it before, Lucas really relied on CGI way too much. Yeah, he did. What did you guys not like about the the clone the battle on Geonosis? I thought it just looked fake. Everything I was just looking at a CGI fest the entire time. There was almost nothing real in it except for the actors. 
I thought it was so cool. I thought like every like uh, I, I mean I can't like single out anything because I thought everything about it was so cool. But it's agree to disagree. It, it's hard to convey on the podcast just because you really do have to have like an image up just to really show like how disjointed it looks. But for example, if you like any listener pull up on your phone, the battle of the Jedi, like the, the scenes with the Jedi in the battlefield in Geonosis. And it is very clear what is human, what is not, and not in a great way. That's true. Yeah. I I think he just bit off more than he can chew, but here's what bothered me more than the CGI. This film in general, and the other two prequels as well, they were both filmed by the same director of photography. His name is David Tattersall. Mm-hmm. Anton, this guy also shot Death Note, the movie we covered, <laughs> Die Another Day, one of the worst James Bond movies, Speed Racer, and the Keanu Reeves remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. All of these films have the same flat, dull cinematography. It's definitely on Tattersall. It's baffling to me how with only within a few short years, and now we're 20 years out, these prequels, they look like low-budget sci-fi channel movies. The uninspired lighting, dull color palettes, too much CGI. And this this is one of the least interesting films I've ever seen in terms of its cinematography. There is not a single interesting camera move in it. It's a lot of it, it's filmed like a network TV show or a soap opera yeah, where there is a lot of medium shots, close up, mm-hmm. cheap looking wipes, repeat. There's the um, the CGI zooms that they add in post-production. There's no creativity whatsoever to the cinematography. Also, the uh, transitions between scenes sometimes remind me of like a PowerPoint presentation. It's glaringly noticeable. Uh, Lucas used them a lot in his films. The wipes. Yeah. Yes. They, yes now, to exactly. be fair, they were in the original trilogy, but I they they're more noticeable here. Well, because the scenes don't really flow; they just skip around, and right. like that's I think that's a big reason why. What did the production get right? Well, we can't end our discussion on Star Wars without talking about John Williams. He brings the A game again. The music's fantastic. He's using electric guitars all over the place through the Coruscant chase. The main love theme across the stars. It's beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful score. It's great. It's everything like you could want from John Williams. Anton speechless. I mean, I don't disagree. Anything to add before we wrap this up? Um, um, go ahead, Taylor. Anton. Please. Oh no, no, I'm reviewing my notes right now. Right. Um. You know, I'll, I'll touch more on it and did we like it? But uh, despite its faults, um, I do have a lot of you know. Just I I admire what this film has built. I'll just stop there. <laughs> I want to say that despite how <laughs> I think it has the highest of the highs and lowest of the lows, but this is the this I, this is the Star Wars film that I've seen the most. And if I'd ever watch a Star Wars film again, it would be this one. And if I'd ever want to watch it with someone else, I'd watch this one. So Taylor, as you are the guest for this week's episode, please give us your verdict first, if you would like to. Okay. I'm really contemplating here, and I gave you my my score before this, but I'm I'm downgrading it. Okay, <laughs> you'll be happy about. <laughs> okay, I would say it's a solid C on the edge of a C plus. Okay, any additional thoughts before we before I move on? Is this what you wanted? You wanted the grade, right? Yeah, that's it. You yeah. can tell us your reasons behind it. Yeah, you know, I I gave all my reasons. I think I think. After this discussion, it 
I think its flaws and the things I like about it, I all knew. I knew coming into this podcast, and you know, they're the prequels are the prequels for what they are. They're just essentially like kids movies in a way. And uh, I was a kid that. when I watched. I was a kid <laughs> when I watched them, and you know, I have. I think they still hold up in in a sense, personally to me. That's well said. I respect it. Very well said. Anton, if you don't mind, I'll go first. Sure, go ahead. This movie did give me a lot of things that I wanted to see. I mentioned the world building. I wanted to see Jedi doing Jedi stuff, and and, and I got that. I wanted to see the groundwork for how Anakin became Darth Vader, and I, I got that in a certain type of way. I do find this less boring than Phantom Menace. I do think it's a worse film. I think the writing is bad at every level. Almost none of the characters' decisions make sense. The dialogue is really cornball stuff. I'm really not convinced George Lucas knows what a plot hole is. There are plot holes left and right. This film is just one big plot hole in a way. Um, Ewan McGregor is the only saving grace in the cast. The rest of it is particularly unimpressive. I, I don't think it holds up visually that well. Everything looks so computerized and processed and unnatural that Lucas might as well have made this an animated film. I think the highs in Phantom Menace are a little bit higher. I like the lightsaber fights better. I like the villain better. I like the pod race. And I think the lows in this film, Attack of the Clones, are lower. Anything with whining Anakin, the love scenes, the droid factory stuff, anything with the droids, it's a pretty bad Star Wars movie. The prequels in general, they're nothing more than a giant cash grab for George Lucas. I think he's really good at story ideas, but not storytelling. He's either incapable of recognizing this or doesn't care. These films' plots, they seem to just be him coming up with ideas and everyone around him saying, yeah, we can do that, George. Minimal thought was given to things like continuity, cohesion. Minimal advice was given to the actors. The vast majority of the time, money, and effort spent on this film was the visual effects, which mostly haven't even aged well because they tried to do far too much with it. It's just lazy filmmaking to me. He was very much challenged on A New Hope, and then he leaned heavily on others to get the next two films made. With these prequels, we now have a three-film sample size of what happens when he's in full control. His track record as a producer is spotty, even with the success of the Indiana Jones trilogy. There's just no evidence that he knows what he's doing. He hit it big early in his career, bigger than most, actually, pretty much anyone other than Spielberg, and then he's just coasted the rest of the way. The potential for these prequels was so promising. They will always be the most disappointing movies of all time to me. I give this a slightly lower rating than Phantom Menace, which is a D. Very well said, Pat. I think you have a uh, when you when you think about Attack of the Clones, you have a very interesting concept, and you have a very complex story. And if anything has been revealed over time, is that the continuation of those stories and those concepts through the expanded universe has shown that this is a very rich and enjoyable spring of ideas and universe that came from George Lucas. But as you said, Pat, it's not a very effective movie in being able to tell that story well. And it's just disappointing because it has that potential. We've seen it and we've seen the reception over the years. And despite that, while this is not a perfect film for all the reasons that we've gone about and I don't feel the need to go on again, it still has staying power. And there's still a lot to be said about how 
intangibly entertaining i find this film and with that i'm trying my best to be objective i think that despite the fact that it may not have been the most effective storytelling it was still able to have gems and moments that were entertaining that were able to introduce and world build and do so enough that it has had to me um in my opinion the most uh the most staying power amongst the films in the trilogy of the prequel trilogy. And with that, I do have to give the film a D. Well said, so also bad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that is it for Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Taylor. It was a pleasure, guys. I enjoyed myself immensely. I'm glad you did. I was going to ask, what did you think of your first podcasting experience? Um, it was a little rough in the beginning, but then it was just like a regular discussion. Yeah, just like, uh, sand, like riding rough, a bike. Rough and coarse. Yeah, exactly. I felt like Anakin Skywalker for a second. Oh, hopefully not too much. <laughs> well, Anton, that is it for season two. Wow, Pat, it's a pleasure. Se- two seasons, yeah, two full two seasons. seasons under our belts. Wow. Oh, wow. Well, um, and yeah. we, we have we many have... more planned. Yes, we do. And we're going to have a recap episode yep. just to reflect on things. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll do more of our admin and shout outs then. But indeed, uh, such a pleasure and great way to wrap up season two. Absolutely. Wouldn't want to do it any other way than with a Star Wars prequel film. So that is it for season two of Why Wasn't It Better? We will see you on season three's premiere, which will be airing oh, probably a week after you hear this one. Well, we won't give it away what we're going to cover, but we can tell you because it will be in October, it will be somewhat of a scary film. Spooky. Take care. Taylor, thank you again. Thanks, guys. Oh,